I have been thinking about trying, especially in this chapter that you read, of really trying to bring out elements of writing that I associate more with with fiction than with scholarly writing, character development, building of a narrative, you know, a sense of the story unfolding over the over the length of the, the reading experience, right? And I've been trying to be much more aware that what historians create is not like a list of facts. We're not actuaries, but a, but a literary performance, right? A, a piece of literature that happens to, you know, have certain conventions about uh, uh, being rooted in, in archives and things that presumably happen. I'm Daniel Pierce, and you're listening to Grotto Pod. Today I have on the podcast Jan Slavodkin, who's a historian of modern Europe with a focus on French colonial and transnational history. He's also a friend of mine, and I was hoping to talk to Jan today a little bit about his current book project, which is a history of famine in 19th and 20th century North Africa, West Africa, and Southeast Asia, and its relationship to changing ideas of scientific control, political obligation, and humanitarian ethics. I also wanted to get Jan's take on what the episodes of famine and French colonial operation have to tell us about our present moment and particularly coronavirus-related crises and administrative dilemmas. That's awfully euphemistic, and I mean, I'm sure Jan has a better phrase for that than I do. But Jan, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah, I also forgot to mention that Jan received his PhD in history from Stanford University and that he's currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Stevanovich Institute on the Formation of Knowledge. So Jan, just to get started today, I was hoping to uh, have you tell our listeners a bit about your your current book project, kind of what, what you're what you're focusing on and what its interest is for you. Yeah, so the project is called kind of tentatively Empire of Hunger. The idea is that I trace famines through the French Empire in the 19th and 20th centuries. And as you said, mostly North Africa, West Africa, and and French Indochina, uh, Vietnam. Uh, And I ask two questions. What kind of problem was famine and who was responsible for it? And asking these questions gives a, a story, a, a changing narrative of increased responsibility for famine, as well as like an ultimate failure to fulfill that responsibility. So in a way, what I'm tracing is a gap between, uh, between norms, between standards, and uh, the fulfillment of those standards that, uh, in my view, uh, continue to have uh, uh, serious uh, consequences for how we think about famine and other and other types of uh, privation. And does this understanding of famine represent a kind of corrective to the way historians have previously understood famine, or at least famines presided over by colonial authorities? Well, what I am, what I'm trying to do, and I'm not the first or the only person trying to do this, uh, but I'm trying to show uh, the relationship between different forms of responsibility for people that we don't generally think of as, as sharing a history, as sharing a genealogy. So under 
the French empire, there were various kinds of ways that you could think about responsibility for people, right? There were colonial civilizing missions. There was in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, the emergence of a welfare state in in one part of the French empire, right? France itself, right? But that, that was not uh, extended to places like, like Senegal or Mali or Laos or Cambodia, right? So what I'm interested in showing is that humanitarianism, what we think of as, human, as, as, as like uh, a contemporary humanitarianism emerged under colonial empires as a way to provide state-like protections and political protections in the, ob- in the absence of like a true welfare state that, that emerged in France, right? So my argument is humanitarianism is kind of a weak corollary to the welfare state. And so I'm curious about how you became interested in this topic particularly, but I, I, I figure that maybe a, a better way of setting up that question is to kind of get your your thumbnail biography, how you first became interested in the academic discipline of history, and then what kind of drew you to French colonial history, yeah. specifically. You know, we, we get this question a lot as as scholars. And I think all of us have like a thumbnail, a thumbnail history, as you say, that is always kind of uh, not the whole truth, right? Like, to be perfectly honest, I kind of fell into it for various reasons, a lot of them having to do with chance. But there, there, there are, I guess, certain inflection points that I, I could talk about. Like, I, uh, you know, I, I just drawn to history, you know, as a kid, I was like a civil war nerd for whatever reason, my brain just works in a way that, that you know, that, that, that works well with the, histor- with the historical discipline for whatever reason. I grew up speaking French because that's what my mom <laughs> speaks. She grew up, she grew up in, in, in French Morocco or Morocco after it was French mostly. So there you have history, you have French. When I went to grad school, I, uh, you know, ended up at, you, you go do a history PhD. The important moment is when you go uh, do research. You usually spend a year, I spent a little more than a year doing research in, in France and, and Senegal and Vietnam. And I got to the archives with this idea that I was going to work on kind of daily quotidian violence in the French Empire. And like so many projects, it completely <laughs> unraveled once I'm sitting there in the archives looking at all these documents. And I'm trying to find a way, you know, this, this is not an easy moment, right? Because I've never like, written a dissertation before, I'm not sure how to do it. The ideas I thought I had kind of were, were not working. So what I was trying to do was, was kind of look widely in the archives for a way to ask the questions that I was trying to ask about violence. And these are questions about what happens when the state breaks down what happens when when the state is a, a a problem for people rather than a solution, rather than a support? And you, I came across the the documents. Actually, the first 
uh, famine I came across in the archives was this 1931 famine in Niger for, for which you, you, you read the chapter uh, based on that, which is the, the first chapter I wrote, actually. So from there, I, I realized that famine and the way colonial administrators and other, and other observers thought about it was like this really fascinating way to think about these like really fundamental questions of political obligation, of humanitarian ethics, of technical control, right? Simply be because it's the most, if you're not eating, then you're not alive. Like it, it, it is, you know, logically prior to any other possible concern you could have, including, you know, security or anti-communism or, or civilizing in any broader sense or education or, or resource extraction. Subsistence has to, to come before that, right? So that's how I, I got into the, to the question of then. I think that's a great segue into that chapter, which describes this famine in the early 1930s. Could you just talk about what that was, what that looked like? Yeah, so this was in 1931. There was a famine in, in a pretty small area of Niger. Right? And the background to this is, is in 1913 and 14, there had been just a massive famine across the the Sahel, which is which is like a strip along the, uh, south of the Sahara that runs the various definitions, but it runs basically across the entire continent from Senegal to Sudan. Right? And there had been just this massive famine not that long before, you know, less than 20 years earlier that killed the sources are pretty bad, but it probably killed them at least a million people. My own feeling is more, but the historians talk about like 800,000 to a million deaths. And this famine did not really trouble the French that much. They just like, oh, you know, they, they had sympathy. They thought it was terrible, but they also felt that their own role was to just kind of sit back and watch and maybe to, to distribute food when and where it was possible. But there was no sense that this, the, the French colonial state's job was to prevent and mitigate and, and come to the aid of starving people. Well, and, and this, not to, sorry to interrupt, but, no, but this, this reflected like a broader understanding of famine as just a, a force of nature that couldn't be mitigated, stopped, or worsened by state intervention. Is that an accurate characterization? Yes. And I think there are two elements to that, at least two. One of them is, is a kind of environmental determinism. Places like the Sahel or the Red River Delta of Tonkin or, or the Gabon Estuary are just kind of naturally prone to you know, various natural disasters or Malthusian overpopulation that makes it impossible to, you know, that makes famines inevitable. And then the other half of this is a pretty shockingly straightforward racism that, that said basically that the people living in these places, these, these harsh environments were uniquely incapable of dealing with famine because of, you know, laziness, lack of lack of foresight is the big one throughout the empire you see over and over laziness lack of foresight technological backwardness of course 
so over and over you see this uh, this formulation that famines are caused by by uh, deficient races living in harsh environments and there's you know that that's there's not much you can do about that right if if locusts come invade fields or if drought occurs or if flooding happens then that uh, famine will ensue and that's that's just kind of inevitable and and that sets the stage for 1931 in which yes so in 1931 a famine occurs that's far smaller than the famine in 1913 and 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 affected a far smaller area of land it's it's uh, restricted to a few districts in in the west of niger around the capital niamey and the local administration led by by a guy named Wiplacide Blaché who was who was the governor of niger briefly he had just got there but right before the famine hit which didn't ha- help matters was very inexperienced but the local administration kind of continued to think in this ra- racial and environmentally deterministic way right that famine simply occurs among in this place and among these populations in this case in fact it's exacerbated by uh, stereotypes about gender right so one of the things that happens what that happened during this famine is that men, everyone moves, right? Everyone moves around during a famine. You try to go to where, where there's food or work. Men were going to British, to the Brit, to British colonies, to, to the Gold Coast and to Nigeria in order to find work. Women were flooding into the main towns in, in Niamey, right? So what administrators saw in a situation with the very, very few French people overseeing just a huge area of land, uh, what administrators saw is women and children flooding into the main towns. And their interpretation of this, where like we would, would think that, you, that this is really bad, starving women and children coming and, and literally dying in front of us means a famine is happening. But in fact, that is not how they interpreted it because they had these ideas of African families as simply shedding unproductive members uh, during times of stress, right? So, so armed with these, primed in these, with these ideas that famine was inevitable, that these populations were uniquely incapable of dealing with it, that famine wasn't happening anyway because uh, women and children uh, migrating and starving were sit was simply a normal part of African life. You see how they uh, the administration failed to do much of anything. Right? And by the time they they took even the most minor steps, it was far too late. The difference is that this time, finally, their superiors, you know, the Ministry of the Colonies and 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 people in in. France did no longer thought that this was an acceptable thing to happen, right? So you get this tension between local administrators who, who think like, you know, asking us to stop famine is like asking us to stop the rain, right? It's, it's, it's a force of nature. And people in France, uh, their superiors who are, who no longer accept this, who are now blaming administrators personally for allowing famine to happen, right? And so there's this t- completely new type of tension that you see manifest itself in, in 1931 around this famine. Well, and I, I mean, also, there's very real basis for the critique of the way that officials who were superintending these areas were responsible for 
this crisis through these agricultural reforms and taxation regimes that just made it so that there just wasn't enough food to subsist, even even though if a, a different kind of way of organizing both agriculture and, and, and imposing taxes, I guess, would have made this far less severe than it was. Yeah. So to be... To be clear, there probably was enough food to subsist. The problem was, and as, as is usually the case in, in famines, the problem is getting the food to the people who need it. And because of years of you know, exploitative taxation, of uh, labor requisitions, people were, for, were forced to provide a certain amount of labor each year for the colonial administration because of forced transition from subsistence crops to export crops, industrial crops. When food prices rose because of the famine, there were no stocks to, to lower food prices, right? One of the things you do during a famine is to release stocks of food, which lowers the price, right? And, and farmers were impoverished, right? So you had this crazy situation where farmers harvest their their grain millet in this case they sell the grain because they need to pay their taxes in cash but they're selling grain at pre at pre-famine prices right so and then they have to buy their own grain back during a famine you know at you know four or five times the price they had they were forced to sell it i want to get into what this moment can kind of illuminate in 2020, particularly in the global South. But I was hoping just before I asked you about that and about your recent op-ed, you could just talk a little bit about this character who figures pretty prominently in the chapter, Inspector Soul, who is a flawed voice, but an ethical voice. Nevertheless, I don't know if you'd agree with that. He definitely is the only contemporaneous critic of how this crisis was managed. Yeah, so Inspector Soul is the, the guy who was put in charge of investigating what happened. Right? And this is the first investigation into a French colonial family. Before, it's, just, it's not something worthy of investigation, really. It's just, it's just something that happens and, and, and you move on. Right? So his remit was to to discover what went wrong and also responsibilities incurred right so they were they were trying to put blame on individual administrators which was very new and which was probably like completely shocking for these administrators who thought they were doing their job the way the way it was supposed to be done right um so he i mean he's very zealously you know takes on this task of trying to to and and you know, there's a way that, that he knows what his superiors are trying to hear, right? When you hear, like, established responsibilities incurred, that means, like, go after these guys, right? Which he did very enthusiastically. So, yeah, he's a, he becomes this, the voice of this, you know, prevailing tendency that, that you know, the well-being of colonial subjects needs to be taken under consideration and that these problems are not, should not be considered inevitable, but something should be done about them. What there is to be done about them is, is like a, a question that the French never quite, you know, settle on, you know, for the rest of the, their, their time in, in the colonies. But he, I mean, it's always interesting, right? Because none of these people are anti-colonial, 
right? They're not, they're certainly not, they're very pro-colonial. And in a way, Seoul says, you know, what we need is not less colonization, but more of it, right? And we need to do it better. Like we, we, need need to, to, we need to take on more responsibility here. Right, and, and, exactly. And, 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 yeah, it's obviously inflected with paternalism. And it's like, we, we can't abdicate our duty right. in this colonial theater. Right, so this is a really robust assumption of responsibility. Right? And yeah. this, is, this, is a new, this is a new phenomenon in, in, in the interwar years. But the great insight that comes from his writings is indeed that this catastrophe was avoidable. Yes. Not to be too opportunistic here with my segues, but, oh, um, you know, so you, you recently wrote this piece in, in Slate called Famine is a Choice. And this was the laudable move from the academic historian of uh, using his expertise to highlight something about a moment we're all living through that feels unprecedented and yet does in several different ways have precedent. So could you talk a little bit about what your argument in the op-ed was and what you were trying to do with it? Well, first, the, the, the context is food experts, uh, uh, the UN's World Food Program, primarily are predicting, or at least uh, warning, that famine is imminent in many areas of the world. And this has to do with, with the logistical and above all economic disruption of the pandemic. And my op-ed, my piece was trying to, it's very simple, basically, that famines don't have to happen if we allocate our resources in a way that privileges subsistence, right? That it should be made the single most important priority, right? This goes back to this kind of, you know, common sense idea that if you don't have enough food, to survive, then there's no, you know, that's just the basis of any other kind of program of, of, of you know, literally of life. Taken a, a step further, you use uh, Amartya Sen's analysis of famine. It's, it's a very pithy quote that I'm going to ruin. Do you, do you know it off the top of your head? I believe it's, it's, it's the first lines of the book Poverty and Famine, which, which was published in 1981. And I, I believe it's Famine is not the characteristic of there not being enough to eat. It is the characteristic of some people not having enough to eat, hmm. which is a, a, a subtle but really important difference, right? The idea of being one of those is, is kind of something you, you have to simply accept, right? If there's not enough food, there's not it's much It's an intractable problem. Exactly. Yeah. The and other the can, be, can be solved. It's about resource distribution. Yeah. My, my piece was simply trying to say that these, these famines don't have to happen. We can make it a priority to uh, distribute resources in such a way that people do not starve. Uh, and then I go through some of these ways of thinking, these patterns of thought that uh, I, I've seen in, in my historical famines and that you you know, that persist in some ways, ways of thinking that, that make famine seem inevitable, right? Well, you, the, the environmental, just, yeah. the racial, and the economic that this is, this is simply, uh, you know, the market has allocated resources in, in a particular way. And if people starve to death, that's like, that's not because of that 
of the markets functioning, but in spite of it, right? No one could do any better. These are biases that you describe in the, the chapter that I read. Yeah, I think that's right. And in a way, I think it could, you know, it applies to COVID-related famines, but it applies to COVID generally, right? I mean, we, we, what, what are we seeing now but, but the government abdicating its responsibility to deal with the problem? I mean, I, I was really excited by that op-ed and to see you uh-huh. kind of writing for, for a general audience, even though your academic writing is so lively and oh, uh, accessible, even as it is rigorous and challenging. Could you describe what it was like kind of working in that register and, and managing that switch? Yeah, I found it pretty difficult. And one of the one of the reasons is that you know we get so bogged down in the details of of the scholarly work that like the big overall insights kind of dis- disappear right so when i wrote this i was like this, but this is so obvious this is stuff everyone knows and you know friends would tell me like well no no you know it because you think about it every day <laughs> uh, um, but these are uh these are important things to remind people and it comes and coming, especially coming from someone who, who, who thinks about these problems deeply. Right. So, so it wasn't so much like in terms of style, I don't think I, I changed that much. You know, I, I tried to be a little breezy or a little lighter, but it was more a question of really getting back into touch with what I think is important about the work I do right, the really big uh, intellectual and ethical takeaways and trying to get that down in kind of a, a pithy way. And that, that was good for the op-ed, but it's also really good for, for uh, you know, the academic work itself. You know, it's, it's hard to forget that what I'm talking about is, is, is like, you know, like basic human obligations to, to reduce suffering, to, to prevent misery. Do you see the the book that you're working on now, Empire of Hunger, as in in some way being a commentary on on how we live today, or is it purely coincidental that your research poised you or equipped you to provide this illuminating commentary on the disasters that are downstream from the coronavirus pandemic? I don't think it's coincidental. I mean, there is you know, the particular problem of famine, you know, happens to be one that, that you know, continues to happen. And, and uh, you know, the, the, in this particular moment, it's of, there was an especial, there's a special danger of, of it occurring. But I think at, at a deeper level, what I'm trying to grapple with is like really basic questions, like almost childish questions of why do we care about other people? Under what circumstances have we succeeded in, in making people's lives better, in reducing misery, right? in organizing in such a way that we prioritize people's basic well-being? These are the questions that, that, that are at the heart of, what I, of, of my research, and they're, and they're you know, universal questions. They're, they're questions that can be asked about any place and any time. Right? So to the extent that I have you know, that, I, that I'm thinking about those kinds of, of big ethical questions, there, there is a, a definite parallel with, with what's going on now, right? Especially as, as 
uh, I believe, and I think you and, and many others do too, that the, the states that have uh, the kinds of states, uh, basically welfare states that have succeeded in, uh, you know, they, they were certainly not perfect, but they did succeed in, in, you know, making more participatory societies where, where more and more people could uh, live a full human life are, are being dismantled, right? And this is, you know, it's, it's at a time of crisis, like a famine or like COVID-19, where you, where you see exactly, uh, you see exactly the worth of the underlying structures of, of the society we've built, right? And, you know, what we have seen is very disappointing. <laughs> Before I let you go, are there like things that I should be asking you that I'm neglecting to ask you? given that most of our listeners are probably avid readers and are writers themselves, but maybe reading more fiction or like narrative nonfiction, like what about your unique perspective am I failing to take advantage of in this conversation? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's funny you should ask that because uh, one of the things I thought about when you asked me to do this podcast was how much I I'm trying to make my history look more like fiction, you know, especially after reading your, your wonderful manuscript and, and, the, and, the, and the character development that you, that you uh, uh, took the time to like really unrolls in a way that I find, found really appealing. I was thinking that, you know, it, it, I don't mean I'm going to start making things up in my, in my historical writing, but I know what writing history is, is writing is writing stories, right? It's writing narratives. Yeah. And famously in, in French, the word for story and the word for history is the same word. I have been thinking about trying, especially in this chapter that you read, of really trying to bring out elements of writing that I associate more with, with fiction than with scholarly writing, character development, building of a narrative, you know, a sense of a sense of the story unfolding over the over the length of the, the reading experience, right? And I've been trying to be much more aware that what historians create is not like a list of facts. We're not actuaries, but a, but a literary performance, right? A, a piece of literature that happens to, you know, have certain conventions about uh, uh, being rooted in, in archives and things that presumably happen. That's what I've found so riveting about your work is that ability to pay simultaneous attention to the characterological drama and the sort of impersonal drama of massive disaster, frankly. I mean, and the the kind of complex systems level dynamics between actual colonial authorities and then French officials who actually reside in, in France. Yeah, but it's, it's a, yeah, and that's something that not most, most fiction writers and, and, you know, even a lot of writers of narrative nonfiction and journalism don't really do. They tend to kind of focus on one or the other. My tendency is to think really big, to think in terms of, of systems, of thought, of economics, and then to see how those systems constrain individuals, characters, right? But, you know, what's interesting about them is precisely the way they constrain individuals and characters. Right? And, yeah. And I do believe that journalists and other types of writers now, I mean, we're, we're living in a moment where that dynamic seems very, very real. I don't know about you, but I, I have been feeling very, uh, 
uh, helpless in the face of these large scale social and natural dynamics a virus just happened to show up and, and disrupt my life right yeah <laughs> but it seems to me that this this dynamic between between individuals and society is is just like really salient right now right and i do see that coming out in journalism and politics you know i think the way the left wing of the democratic party and and you know the bernie sanders and others have been talking about problems as social problems right yeah as as large scale problems it, it, it seems like a moment where that balance is it seems especially relevant and productive to be thinking about it you know and that's something i got from that I, that I hope I draw from, from fiction, the idea of character development within these historical bounds. Thank you so much, Jan, for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you, Daniel. It was a pleasure. Such a, such a treat for me. And that's our show for today. Grottopod is produced by Susie Gerhard, George Higgins, Ben Marks, Beth Weingartner, Andrew Braithwaite, Rita Chang Epic, and myself. The music is by Sugartown. Grottopod is concocted in-house at the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco. Please review and subscribe to Grottopod in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Pierce, and thanks for listening.